You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and uh, reading there in Genesis chapter 1. I forgot to look at the church Bible at the back, but I believe it's on page 4, if you need that help. And uh, last uh, Sunday evening we began a short series of uh, maybe seven or eight uh, studies in these opening three chapters of Genesis, and I want us to uh, read in Genesis chapter 1 some words from the beginning of the chapter, um, and you'll notice that the whole chapter has a kind of rhythm and pattern that runs through it to which I'll draw attention and then read some words at the end. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And that rhythm runs through the verses that follow. God speaks and uh, says, let there be, and what he commands comes into being. Uh, He acts, and then he pronounces that what he has done is good. You find that pattern, for example, in verse 9. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And that pattern continues right through to uh, verse 25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then eventually in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Last time we noticed something that actually is very obvious about the first chapter of the book of Genesis, 
But in some ways, it's so obvious, we almost never notice it. We tend to read the book of Genesis and then the rest of the Bible, thinking that what we have is the presentation of God as the Creator, and then God as the Redeemer. And truly, that is how God reveals Himself. He reveals Himself here in the events described in Genesis 1 as the Creator of the cosmos. And then He comes to His people, various contexts of privation and bondage, and He delivers them, and that pattern continues until we find the grand deliverance of sinners like ourselves through the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the people who first read the book of Genesis did not see it that way, just as it would be true to say that Christians tend not to see it that way. We do not come to know God as the Creator and then come to know Him as the Savior. We come to know Him as the Savior. And then, because we have come to know Him as the Savior, the truth unfolds to us that the one who has come to be our Savior is actually our Creator. That's even more obvious, isn't it, in the Gospel. The Apostle John, for example, did not first of all come to know Jesus as his Creator. He came to know Jesus as his Redeemer. And then discovering his greatness, he was later able to share his testimony that this Redeemer was actually the Word of God who was in the beginning with God through whom God had brought all things into being. And in many ways, that helps us to understand what it is that Moses is doing for us when he recounts the narrative in the first chapter of Genesis. Just as there is a wonderful liberation in the life of the Christian believer who comes to realize that his or her Savior is actually the creator of the entire universe that actually transforms the Christian life. That is why, actually, it is so sad that sometimes Christians who have trusted in Jesus Christ have turned their backs upon the world that Jesus Christ has made. They have closed off certain disciplines and activities. I remember when I was a young Christian being encouraged by other Christians there were certain areas of life that was, were regarded as dangerous for the Christian to have anything to do with. The idea of being a Christian and an artist, the idea of being a Christian and a businessman, the idea of being a Christian and a scientist, the idea of being a Christian and almost anything except a minister or a missionary would raise suspicions about your spirituality. And of course, that was, so, that was so radically contrary to the teaching of the New Testament, because the New Testament had taught right from the very beginning that when we discover that the one who has redeemed us 
from the bondage we have had in sin is actually the creator of the entire universe. It does for us what it has done for many Christians in the past. It sets us free to explore God's universe. It gives us a sense that we are safe in being scientists. We are safe in being artists. We are even safe in being politicians because this is our Redeemer's world. And in the world, of course, in which these believers who had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt in the days of the Exodus live, in those days, the message that the God who had redeemed them from their bondage and captivity in Egypt was not one small local God who had a special interest in one people over against the gods who had special interests in the Egyptians or the Assyrians or whoever. But this God was actually the creator of the heavens and the earth, brought to this group of slaves, which is what they all were, with the single exception of Moses himself, brought to this group of slaves such a sense of the grandeur of what it meant to belong to the Lord. And you find that in a very striking way, don't you, as you as you see them celebrating what God has done. And here we are to imagine ourselves uh, into perhaps being the first people around the campfire as Moses in these 40 years of wilderness wandering, so frustrating, is, as it were, finding something to divert his attention from all the struggles and is penning the pages of the first five books of the Bible, and then coming out, as it were, and rehearsing the narrative to the people to give them a sense that though they are wandering here in the wilderness, the God who has redeemed them, the shepherd of Israel who will lead them into the promised land, is one who is well able to do it because the heavens are his creation. The earth is his handiwork. Everything works in accordance with his heavenly purpose. And even though they find themselves wandering in the wilderness, it's possible for them to know a profound security and sense of destiny, and even to sing his praises and to know his joy, because your Savior is your Creator, your Redeemer is the maker of the cosmos. And for that reason, it's rather important for us when we read Genesis because in our own times, the very mention of Genesis chapter 1, the very mention of creation raises so many different questions. It's very important for us in the first instance to realize that Genesis 1 is actually about God. It's actually about God. It's intended, as we noted last time, not to provide for us the equations of the physics that God used in bringing heaven and earth into being. 
It's intended to fix our eyes upon who God is, on His majesty and His power and His glory, because its fundamental emphases are these three. First of all, that this world is a divine creation. Secondly, that this world is a personal creation. And thirdly, that this world is a good creation. And that because of the character of God the Creator, because of the personhood of God the Creator, and also because of the supreme goodness of God the Creator. This is, uh, this is Christianity 101. This world is a divine creation. That's why if you read down through the first section in uh, the book of Genesis, you'll notice if my arithmetic is correct, and I've counted twice, although that's no guarantee, there are 30 sentences that begin with God. So even if you just listen to Moses round the campfire retelling the story, the rhythm would be God did this, God said that, God spoke this, God called that, God thought this. You can almost sense the drumbeat of the footsteps of God moving through the community and raising their eyes to this fundamental principle that actually this world is a creation, and it has been created by the God who is the Redeemer of His people. And this is expounded in a very particular way. There are some details in Genesis chapter 1 that I think would have had very special significance to the people for whom Moses was writing. Remember, they had come out of Egypt. They had been surrounded as, in some senses, we are being increasingly surrounded by paganism, by the worship of the creation rather than the worship of the Creator. And Moses here indicates to the people that the God who has redeemed them is actually the one who created the things, the creatures, that the Egyptians thought were their gods. Uh, scholars often point out the interesting thing that when Moses describes the creation of the sun that governs the day and the moon, that governs the night, both of which were regarded in the ancient Near East as themselves gods. He doesn't even use the ordinary names for sun and moon. These amazing creations of God, he treats as though they were absolutely trivial to him. He speaks and he creates a light to govern the day and a light to govern the night, and all of this atmospherically, psychologically, theologically, emotionally 
is delivering the people from this sense that they are in bondage to the order of reality around them. And fascinatingly, this is very interesting, actually, in the light of the fact that most popular newspapers today give more space to astrologers than they do to gospel ministers. Isn't that true? More space to astrologers than they do to gospel ministers. And when Moses mentions the creation of the stars, it's, it's almost as though he's saying, actually, I almost forgot to say, and he made the stars. And he's speaking into a world where people are, have you ever met anyone who actually believes that stuff? There are people who believe that stuff. Indeed, some of the people who write that stuff actually believe that stuff. That our lives are controlled by the stars, that there is a kind of astral determinism that controls your life. And it leads you, of course, into bondage. You daren't step out of your astrology forecast for the day. Those of you who may be English literature majors, remember that great passage in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar? When is it Cassius? I should have looked this up. Is it Cassius who says, uh, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus, speaking of Julius Caesar, and we petty men peep under his huge legs and walk about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars. Now, why do you say that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. Why did he say that? Because he lived in a world where people thought their destiny was controlled by the stars. There was a kind of determinism from which they could never escape. And as some of you know, part of the famous mythologies of the ancient Near East gave an enormous place to the role of sea monsters in the events and the crises and conflict of the creation of the world. And Moses is helping the people to understand. These are just the, these are just the bath toys that God has placed in the sea for the amusement and joy of his children. And it's giving God's people a massive sense of the sheer greatness of God and the fact, as the Psalms come to celebrate, that all the gods are dumb idols feared by nations But our God is the Lord who has made the heavens and the earth. Now you see what people had done. They had done already at the time of the Exodus and these ancient religions. They had, as Paul says in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God the Creator, who had made himself clearly known in the beauty of his creation. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they ended up worshipping, serving the creature rather than the creator. Now, why is that so significant? It's particularly significant in our times because 
it teaches us a very great lesson that when men and women of every race or any category of society turn their backs on the true and living God who made heaven and earth, there is only one thing left for them to worship, and that is the creature. That is the creation. That's one of the reasons, incidentally, why you will find people who are what we would call neo-pagans, who are passionate about saving whales, but often are equally passionate about aborting babies. Why is this? Because they find themselves worshiping the creature. It's all they've got. They've turned their backs on the living God. They were made to worship Him. And so, at the end of the day, you've got to worship something. As we were reminded this morning from Ecclesiastes, God has placed this burden in every human heart. He has set eternity in our hearts. So, we can never be satisfied with the creature. Never, ever be satisfied with the creature. And so, we find when we turn our backs on the living God who made heaven and earth, for whom the creatures are but His playthings, the toys that He enjoys His children to watch and to see, when we turn our back on Him, it's very interesting what happens to us. I think in the Western world, we don't know enough about our own history to understand that before our peoples came to faith in the true and living God in Jesus Christ. We were nature worshippers. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we turn our backs on the true and living God, we don't just go back to that old decent way of life we assumed that was there before the gospel came. We go back to a kind of desperate paganism because we discover there is nothing in all the world that can satisfy our deepest longings for the Creator who made us and set eternity in our hearts. And so, there's a wonderful thing to know, a gloriously liberating thing to know, that the one you came to in simple faith for the forgiveness of your sins, that was was that true of you? It was true of me. The only reason I came to Jesus was I needed to have my sins forgiven. Or with these people, they needed to be set free from their bondage, just as someone today might come to Jesus because they needed to be set free from their bondage to some addiction or another. And then you discover He is infinitely greater than you ever imagined. And He is actually the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And if your Savior is the Creator of the heavens and the earth, you belong to that kind of individual who can have absolute poise and assurance and peace and joy in this universe because its Creator is your Savior. 
second thing that Moses emphasizes for us is that this world is not only a divine creation, it's a personal creation. That is to say, it was brought into being by an infinitely great person, the living God. And so, it has all the marks of personalness about it. Actually, that's the way he describes creation here in Genesis chapter 1, as you you read through these verses, which I hope you'll do again at your leisure. You, you You can almost see God personally at work. Everything he does is thought out as though by a person, because he is a person. Everything he does is designed as though he had a purpose, because he does have a purpose. And you can almost see him at work. The way Moses describes it actually is is very beautiful and, and very much the activity of a person. For example, you'll notice that in the first three days, God deals with the darkness and the formlessness and the emptiness of the original creation. God brings the cosmos into being, verse 2, but the earth was formless, empty, and dark. And the first thing God does in these first three days is He he deals with that. He reverses the darkness and says, let there be light. He reverses the formlessness, and he begins, to, he begins to give the world shape. If you, if you read these verses slowly and carefully, you can, you can, almost, you can almost see his mind at work. You can, you can see the, the kind of inner logic. Now, if, if at the end of the day I'm going to make man as my image, which is where he's going in this creation… That's why there's a kind of pause after he has made everything else and made creatures after their kind. There is a pause, and the introduction of the creation of man is entirely different from everything that's preceded it. And uh, you see, that's what he has in view, and so you can see his mind at work. If I'm beginning with shapelessness, emptiness, and darkness… And what I'm going to do is produce a man. Then it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? If you're in, well, if you're intelligent, you don't begin the jigsaw puzzle in the middle. You begin the, the jigsaw puzzle at the edges. And then you, you work in. And the pattern begins to develop. And so he, he sheds light in a dark world. Interestingly, before the creation of the sun and the moon... He sheds light in the dark world. It's the prerequisite for everything. And then he begins to shape things. And the the formlessness becomes this beautiful form of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the sky. And then in in days four, five, and six, he begins to fill it. He begins to fill the heavens and the earth. And then as the picture is 
being filled in. You, you get to, maybe it's more like a tapestry than like a jigsaw puzzle. You eventually get to what is going to lie right at the very center. And that is the creation of another person. You see, nothing he has created before the sixth day is a person. There's vegetation, there are trees, there are fish, there are sea monsters, there are animals, there are birds flying around in the air. But you see his, what he really wants to do, because he himself is a person. He wants to put a little person in the middle of all this. Now, why does he want to do that? Now, here's the next great thing for the Christian believer to understand. He's doing that because he's making this world for, yes, he's doing it for his own glory, but he's making this world for men and women. He's making this world for men and women. Some of you who belong to the age category that our minister distinguished this morning in prayer in a kind of those who are old and the rest of us. Those of us who are old may remember a pretty sensational news item about 31 years ago when the professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge University left his hugely distinguished chair in the university to go and study theology and become a minister. It was a, it was, it was a minor sensation. Uh, his name is uh, John Polkinghorne, Sir John Polkinghorne, hugely distinguished individual. He has said many a time when people have asked him, why did you do this? He said, how would I know? Mathematical physics, he says, is a young man's game, 50 years old, thought I could serve the Lord in some other way. And uh, in due course, he became a distinguished, not only uh, mathematician, but also theologian. Now, the, the reason I mentioned this was because I happened to see an interview on television with him when they sent along a rather brash and arrogant young, I think it was BBC reporter, who knew so much more than John Polkinghorne could possibly have known, and derided his faith. How could, how could somebody who knew so much about the sheer vastness of the universe, how could he possibly think that God had made man to be so significant? And I remember seeing this Michelin man boy being punctured just by a sentence of John Polkinghorne when uh, he said to him in a very gracious way, he said, young man, he said, young man. You know, if you're at Cambridge, you speak out of the side of your mouth, don't you? Young man, he said. Uh, he said, the sheer vastness of the universe is the necessary presupposition for the existence of man. And that's true. Apparently, that's true. Were it not so vast, so complex so intricate, so amazingly balanced. This is why, of course, the secular humanists are desperate to find life somewhere out there. 
Because it's just so stubbornly extraordinary that we exist. As one famous physicist put it, he said, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. Isn't that good? The universe in some sense must have known we were coming. He's not saying that as somebody who believes Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2 or Revelation chapter 22. He's saying that as he examines the absolute amazing world in which we live, in which there are persons. And we all understand, you know, all these beasties that are in the one square inch of our skin, they are not persons. We all understand if you're a cat lover or a dog lover, they're not persons. I'm sorry to disappoint you if you thought it was true, but your dog is not a person. You can train it to mimic and do all kinds of things. You can get your budger regard to say, pretty Polly. I had one once who did that before she took her own life by screwing her neck in the bars. <laughs> and this is why, as we'll see next time, there's this, this huge gap. It's like you know sometimes bands do this organists at least in the United States love to do this and classical organists you know you get to the second last verse and in between the second last verse and the last verse suddenly you've got to stop singing as the the organ goes up a register or as the band plays just to get you ready for the last huge leap to the great moment in the hymn and the great moment in the hymn of Genesis comes when instead of God saying, let us make something else after its kind, he says, let us make man and woman after our kind. This is such a delightful thing to know because you see, only if there is a personal creator can there be any rationale to the universe and any rationale to life, only if there is a personal creator. Otherwise, we live in a clockwork orange. Otherwise, at the end of the day, there really is no meaning to anything except the meaning we try to impose upon it. That's why at least Richard Dawkins is consistent with his views when somebody says, why did little Johnny have to die? That you can't ask that question because there is no answer to the question why. Because this world doesn't have resources to answer why questions because there is no why there is only how I can describe how. Well, you see, when you're, you know, all you need to do is read the first chapter of the Bible. Isn't it interesting how people who just, you know, they want, they have no time for the Christian faith. They know it all. 
They know nothing about the first chapter of the Bible. If you ask them, take me through the first chapter of the Bible, explain what Moses is saying here. They have no idea what Moses is saying here. But what Moses is saying here is, only a personal God could create a world with meaning and a world with beauty like this world. And the simplest believer, I find this frankly absolutely thrilling about the gospel, the simplest believer has in his or her hands the ultimate secret of the whole universe and the secret of the meaning of life. The one who has redeemed me is actually the one who has created everything for me. But why has he created everything for me? Well, he's created everything for me, that is, for us, in order that we might give all praise and glory to him. What's he doing here? What is, it that, what is God building here? You know, it's interesting in the Bible, wherever the Spirit of God is involved in a building project, what he's doing is building a temple. It's just an interesting fact. Wherever the Spirit of God is involved in a building project, he seems to be a temple architect. You know, there are different kinds of architects, but the Spirit specializes in creating temples. When do we read about the Spirit operating again in the first books of the Bible? When he comes and he gives individuals, Bezalel and Aholiab, special gifts to be able to create the beauty of the tabernacle. And then the Spirit comes again, and we're told that he broods over the womb of the Virgin Mary And he creates the humanity of the Lord Jesus, who said about his humanity, destroy this temple, and I will build it again in three days. And then he comes upon his people, and he turns us into what? A temple of the living God, put together through the Spirit by living stones and uh, That should alert us to the fact that when the Spirit begins to brood over the dark waters of the original created stuff, actually what he's going to be involved in is managing the building of a temple. This world, perhaps we'd better say a cathedral. That's that's what Genesis 1 is describing. It's describing a cathedral in which there is color and there is light and there is song and there is beauty because all of this is to be the cathedral in which this man with this woman at his side will lead all creation in worship and adoration of the God who has made us. We're made to worship him. That's why the third major emphasis here is that this is a personal creation. And uh, yes, this is a creation that uh, 
God has wonderfully woven together as a cathedral. But it's important also to notice the tremendous emphasis on the fact that it's a good creation. Um, everything he makes, he, he sits back. You sometimes do this when, you know, you, you play a sport and somebody hit a good shot or, you know, a terrific goal. Or you read a book or you had a fine meal or whatever and you kind of sit back with a satisfaction. What do you say? Say that was good. That was really, really good. And that's what God does. Now the interesting thing is here. Um, do you know the question, what is good, has been one of the major problems for mental philosophers for thousands of years. And they've, they've not been able to arrive at any kind of agreement about what is good. But when you think about Genesis chapter 1, there's only one reality in Genesis chapter 1 that could be the measure of good, isn't there? It's God himself. Good is what is consistent with God's character and pleases him. And this world is good. And he has made us consistent with his character, little persons reflecting his infinite person so that we would be able to... Now, the, the animals can't say this. I don't know what they think when they chew the grass in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve are able to look around and say, boy, this is really good. This is really good. Now, I know there's been a fall but don't you find it interesting that most people today think the greatest problem with the Christian faith is the problem of evil? And uh, that will often be used in arguments. How can you believe in this Christian faith when there is evil in the world? Very few, if any, of those people have thought long enough to realize that actually the secular humanist has a far greater problem, far, far greater problem, and that's the problem of good. You notice how secular humanists, when things go wrong, if they want to speak about God, they will say, why did God not interfere? but they never want God to interfere at any other time in their lives. Radical inconsistency. And there's a great problem. Actually, most people think this is a good world, don't they? Without ever thinking, that's a big problem to me. That's a huge intellectual problem. Why should there be so much good? Why should it be this way? And actually, there's no answer except to say it just happens to be this way. And if you're going to say it just happens to be this way, all you mean when you say good is, I kind of like it this way. And so you're not really able to say about anything, that's bad if somebody else says, but I like it this way. Isn't that the case? And you see here is the humblest Christian believer and 
What does he understand? He understands that in a good world, it is possible through biblical lenses to understand why bad things happen. But in a world without God, there is no way to explain why it is that anything good happens, or for that matter, anything bad. And so at the end of the day, and this is one of the strengths of being a Christian, the end of the day, everyone who is a secular humanist has to borrow the capital of the Christian gospel in order to be able to live with any intelligence in this world that God has created. Otherwise, there is no ultimate rationality. There is no ultimate good or evil. There is no ultimate purpose. They're just biological determinism. You do what you do because of the wobbly stuff that you're made of. And all the things that you think have meaning, they have no meaning whatsoever. Why? Because there is no meaning. All there is, is what there is. And please don't ask me where it came from. Remember when I was a young student, I think I was maybe 17, it was Christmas time. I was wandering through the bookshelves in the university bookshop. I had a psychology professor who was, if I remember rightly, the vice chairman of the British Humanist Society. I would have recognized her rather unpleasant voice anywhere, inside or outside the lecture room. She was by far the dullest one I'd ever had. Christians can be dull as well, incidentally, but she was truly dull. And over the bookshelf, I heard her say to one of the shop assistants, very conspiratorially, do you sell Christmas cards here? I wanted to jump over. I guess I was still concerned about the grades, but I wanted to jump over and say, ah, Professor X, you need to borrow from gospel truth to have a happy 25th of December. But you've no right to borrow. You've nothing in the bank. It's all meaningless. And you taught us, didn't you, just five lectures ago, you taught us everything we are is simply a matter of biological determinism. So you're not getting any Christmas this year or any year at all. It's always the same. That's a trivial, amusing example. It's always the same. You'll see it all of the time. The absolute impossibility of living in this world as though it had not been created by a personal God who had become a redeemer to his people and made everything good. Indeed, you've actually no right to say this is good. All you've a right to say is, I like it, even if you don't. 
Have you any sense of what that ethic would do in our society? It's interesting, nobody adopts it, do they? Here is a father who says, you know, morality is all right. One woman, another woman, it doesn't really matter. There are no moral absolutes. And you say to him, what if somebody rapes your daughter? Are you going to say there's no moral absolutes? What if somebody maligns and defiles your three-year-old son? Are you going to say, well, he liked it and I don't like it, but that's fine? Because there's neither really good nor evil. See, at the end of the day, this first chapter of the Bible is giving us a glorious foundation, especially in our increasingly neo-pagan world. That struck you as strange that so many people are covering their bodies with tattoos today? Where did you last see that? You last saw that when you were watching a movie about pagans. That's where you last saw it. Why is it happening? Why is it so cool? Because your body's all you've got. So you might as well do with it what you want. And if that's what you like, then that's your good. How gloriously different, how marvelously health-giving, how spectacularly stabilizing it is to know that your Savior is your Creator. Oh, I hope you know Him because uh, otherwise you have to hide yourself in a little intellectual cocoon and fight against everyone who's outside of it and make yourself the center of the universe. Which is why Friedrich Nietzsche, the great, in inverted commas, German philosopher, who has had such an influence on the 20th and 21st century, once said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? And if you will not have this God as your God, then you end up salivating and worshipping your little self. God help you if that's true. May you cry, God help me if that's true. And you couldn't say better words or make a more important prayer because that's the very thing he'll do. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.